we need to understand this is something we're, I mean, we kind of, I think sometimes we think of Christianity and of the kingdom and of uh, the, this, this life that we're called to as a grid that's being like superimposed down on top of us. Like, like, well, here's me. And then here's what my Christianity tells me I should be. But that is, that is not, that's not the truth. The truth is we were created to be like God. That's the first thing that God said about mankind, that they are like me. This, that's, that is our heritage. That's who we are. That's what we were created to be. And anything less than that, is a dilution of, of who we are. It's, it's, it's a twisting. It's a, it's a marring of the image of God that was built into us from day one, from the beginning. And I know that we, none of us have ever really lived in, in the fullness of that. We've never seen, we've never, we've never been a people who, uh, obey without trying, <laughs> or who are righteous without effort. That's not who we've, none of us have ever experienced that place, but that's our inheritance. That's who we really are. That's who God created us to be. And that's the end goal. The end goal of Christianity is not, is not just behavior modification, although our behavior will be modified. The end goal of Christianity is that what we want and what we're after what we desire is changed. That 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 our the things we delight in are radically shifted. That that's that that instead of instead of something being imposed on us from the outside, that the Holy Spirit is renewing us from the inside out, so that it is our true inner nature that is being revealed as being like Christ, and not some kind of thing that's well. I'm gonna you know, start by changing my behavior and it's going to kind of trickle down into my actual internal character. No, that's not, that's not what Jesus is after. It's not what this is all about. It's not what it's for. And for me, it's, it it is helpful to think of things that way and to talk to myself in the midst of my, uh, in the midst of, you know, me losing my temper or finding myself in the midst of a bad attitude, finding myself in the midst of sin, reminding myself, this is not who I am. Spend taking a second right there when, when I awaken to the fact that, oh man, I'm in the midst of sin right now, is reminding myself, no, 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 this is not who I am. This is what I've become because of sin, but this is not who I am. My, my, the, the reality of who I am is, is better, greater, higher. It's like Christ. And I'm being returned to my actual identity. And, and Satan can't steal that from me. That's my inheritance. The inheritance that Peter says is kept in heaven. That is, uh, imperishable that it's, it's out there. It's waiting for me. And I am receiving it little by little as, as I move forward until the day when my body will be resurrected and I will be who I was created to be fully. That's an exciting thought for me. And it's a helpful thought for me because, uh, it's like, it's like the fast you're on right now. Okay. 
not to make light of your unpleasantness, but so the fast run right now feels unnatural. It's a change. It's a it's it's a change in the rhythm of your normal life, the kind of things you would usually reach for and expect. And your body is rebelling against this change because it's this isn't what you're used to. This isn't the habit of your normal of your normal life and your body's going, Oh, where's the meat? Where's the sugar? Where's the, you know? And, and you're like, sorry, I'm not doing that right now. But if you would continue in this manner of eating for a month, your body would, would eventually turn to expect this kind of diet and it would not be difficult moving forward. Cause the truth is this is healthier for you. <laughs> <laughs> than the way you normally eat. But your body doesn't know that. And, that, and that's the same thing with, with following Christ. It's, we, feel like, we feel like we're imposing something upon uh, our, our, our nature. Like, would, no, I, I need to behave in a way other than I would naturally. But the truth is that living like Jesus is the happiest way to live we just don't realize it immediately because it's so radically different. It's a very different perspective on the world. When we begin to to adopt the uh, the uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it is an awkward way. Especially there's so many. I mean, I was going to say especially for Americans, but the truth is the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle is. Um, <clears throat> Difficult for every culture, just in different ways. In American culture, it's difficult because we're talking about self-denial. We're talking about admitting the fact that I need help, which is unbelievably difficult for Western people. We don't want to be dependent on anything or anyone. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you hate those moments where you can't help yourself and you have to actually help have someone help you? Like from like one of the things that terrifies me is like the possibility of, you know, at old age and not, you know, like not being able to dress myself or even like handle like the bathroom by myself. That scares me. I, I hate that idea. The reason I hate that idea is because our what our american western you know societal thing is all about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and taking care of your own stuff and right you know you shouldn't have to rely on anybody else right you know that's okay <clears throat> i don't know why i associate that particular accent with that understanding <laughs> but <laughs> but it is that's what's that's how we live and we kind of look down on anyone that needs help to get from where they are to where they should be. The people we look up to are the people that are like, I'm a self-made man, and right? Which is actually bullcrap because you didn't make yourself. Did you? No. Everything that you have, you, you, you might say, I, I leveraged what I had to get more. That You can say that. But what you had, the, the brain that you have, the soul that you have, the capacities that you have were all given to you as a gift, and people seem to forget that. Or, you know, they'll be like, "My life started out so hard. I, you know, I was from a broken family, and 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 you know, and there, there's a lot of things that made their life difficult, and I get that. But at the same time, you have a brain that works correctly. You have a body that works. 
You have, you know, you're breathing right now. Every single breath is a gift. And so this whole, this, this kind of thing about, you know, well, we, we look up to the one who is the self-made person that, 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 that kind of took, that they didn't. Every single one of us were given immeasurable gifts when we began this journey. And some of us chose to use them to move further and God wants us to do that. And some of us don't, which isn't pleasing to the Lord. But it is a fallacy to believe that anybody is, quote unquote, self-made, because nobody is. Dirt, regardless of what Charles Darwin might tell you, dirt does not form itself into a human being. We were created by God. I don't know where this whole rant is coming from, except I think it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so... Just take that for what it is. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. It is my intention to complete this whole chapter today. Um, it's not a long chapter, and there's there's only really two kind of major salient ideas in the chapter, so we should be able to do the whole thing. And you're all smirking at me, like, yeah, sure, right? We've never done anything like that. I am telling you, we are going to do it, okay? <laughs> and I might be completely wrong, but who knows? <laughs> I'm trying. I really am. I'm going to do what I can. Um, especially because the end of this chapter is really exciting for me, and I and I, I just I want to get there. So, um, so to kind of back up, back into chapter two. It's been a few weeks, but at the end of chapter two, we were talking about um, how this. The Jewish people have been given the law, but that doesn't make them righteous. That, uh, that just because they're Jewish in, uh, in heritage does not mean that they're righteous people. That circumcision, which is this, the sign of the covenant, does not make you a righteous man. Um, <coughs> it's an outward reality, but there's an inward reality that needs to match it or else it's worthless. That outward reality is worthless. You know, we talked about how... You know, doesn't matter. You can be baptized in water as many times as you want, unless you're actually a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not saved. You know, unless there's actual faith to back it up, then you're not going to heaven. That's the way that it is. You can take communion as many times as you want, but it's not the act of taking communion that forgives you, even though the Roman Catholic Church might say otherwise. It's not the act of taking communion, whether it's given to you by a priest or by some, you know, guy that works at Walmart. It doesn't matter. Taking communion does not save you. It is faith in that which is being symbolized by communion that saves you. Okay, so we got it. There's this inward reality that is matched by an outward reality that keep that makes us saved. And so he's kind of gone on this whole thing to try and and disillusion the 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 Jews in his audience and help them realize that they're not any better than the Romans or the Greeks that are in his audience. You remember he has two sides to his audience that he's writing to. He has Roman pagans, former Rome, former pagans who uh, have now are, are now following Christ. And he has Jewish people who are now following Christ. And the Jewish people tended to elevate themselves, at least in their own minds, over the, the Roman Christians because, well, after all, it's the same God we've always followed. It's just kind of a tweak on the old. 
And Paul is going, no, wrong. <laughs> it's not a tweak. This is an entirely different thing. You weren't righteous then, but it's through only through Jesus Christ you've been made righteous now. So <clears throat> he is kind of just finished this long discussion on that. And now he is going to step to the, he, he realizes that his Jewish audience probably has some thoughts going on in their head, some objections to what he just said. And so he's going to answer them, even though, uh, you know, it's obviously he's not having a conversation with them, but he's had enough conversation with enough Jew with enough, enough Jewish people that he knows already what they're going to say. You see the apostle Paul's primary method of, of re of preaching the gospel is he would go into a region. And the first thing he would do is he would go to the synagogue or wherever the Jewish people of that region were meeting, and he would begin teaching there amongst the Jews first. That's why the Apostle Paul says often in this book, the gospel goes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He would go to the Jew first. He would go to the Jewish community. He was a, he was a Jewish person um, by heritage, and so he knew he would be accepted there, and then perhaps he could find someplace to stay, etc. As he goes into the Jewish community, they would hear what he had to say. And then from there as a home base, he would begin to reach out into the Gentile community. Okay, so that's what he's done. And he's had these conversations over and over again. So when we, in the, in the book of Romans, he says, I already know what you're thinking. I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead and answer your question before you even ask it. But before we get there, I want everybody to stand up. Come on, stand up. I see lots of, lots of sleepiness. So stretch. Come on, straight up to the ceiling. Oh, it's good for you. Every time my dog gets off the couch, she stretches. I've been trying to, uh, you know. Mimic your dog. Mimic my dog a wee bit. Stretch. Stretch. Come on, I know you haven't had any caffeine, but you need to wake up your body. Okay, then you can sit back down. All right. It's telling you what makes a difference. I feel like when I woke up this morning, my back really hurt. I started doing some of my stretches that and it's like, yeah, I feel a lot better. It really helps. Stop. Don't encourage okay. Romans 3, verse 1. So here's the first question that his imaginary Jewish person he's having a conversation with is asking. <coughs> then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Okay, the Jewish person has a point. God has spent the last, like, 3,000 years before this, okay? Might be more than that, maybe 4,000 years before this telling the Jewish people to live a certain way and to do a certain thing. And now the Apostle Paul is saying that was all worthless. At least that was that is one way you could interpret what he has just said. Oh, you know that thing God spent the last 4,000 years saying to you? Just forget it. It's not important. Okay, that's, that's kind of what it sounds like he might be saying. And I'm sure a Jewish person who has built their life on this understanding of who God is and what God wants, as soon as he hears Paul saying all that is not going to save you. I'm sure they're going, excuse me, wait, <laughs> just a minute. What do you mean? I, you know, the last 4,000 years of my people has been all about this, and now you're saying it, that's not important? So, so what advantage has the Jew? Like, 
I thought we were God's chosen people. And, and you know, that, and so why did part of my penis get cut off when I was eight days old? Okay, this is an issue, you know, I would like to know about. And, okay. So, I'm sorry I said the P word. Um, <laughs> what is the benefit of circumcision? And the Apostle Paul <clears throat> says, verse 2, great in every respect. Okay, so he's, he's saying it isn't that God's been wasting his time for the last 4,000 years. He said, but the current interpretation of what God has been saying for 4,000 years has not been correct. The way that you that we have believed, we got off of the track that God put us on with Moses. We got so so set on the law and on circumcision and on these outward things that we have forgotten the inward. He said, there is a there is much great in every respect is God's choosing of his people. And then he mentions one. He only mentions one because he's busy and he's gonna plus Paul has ADD. I don't know if you noticed. How many of you have ever read like the letters of Paul and you're like, wait a minute, weren't you just, when did, when did we switch topics? Do you do that? I totally do that. And I have to like follow his, and there's, uh, there's this particular method of Bible study called arcing where you can kind of like draw, like take a sentence and okay, this is going back to that. And then this is going, okay. So, and you, you need to do that with Paul. You need to realize that he, he has ADD and I mean, I really think he did. He was a brilliant man, and so I'm not surprised. Um, he's got so much in there that needs to come out, and Paul dictated his letters. Okay, perhaps so he, perhaps he was dictating. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he and and so we know that because there's you know clues all through the all through the letters that he was dictating, and 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 he. So he's talking this stuff out. And, and he's just kind of doing flow of consciousness kind of discussion. And, and, and then he'll be like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Let's go back to this. So he'll, he'll say something and then, and then talk about something completely different for an entire chapter and then go back to what he said originally. Because it's all one flow of thought for him. So as you're reading the letters, and I would, I would encourage you to try, every, you know, just to sit down and read through an entire book. Uh, you guys are probably like, oh my gosh, that's so much, but it's really not. Okay. Um, we, we go extremely slow in these studies and I think that's good. But, but one of the things that, one of the things that I like to do, especially with Paul is to just read through the entire letter because you get a sense of the whole flow of his thought process when you walk through, just straight through the entire letter. It might be easier if you did some of the shorter ones. <laughs> but like the book of Ephesians is, I, I love just sitting and reading through that in one sitting. It's fascinating to me. But anyway, okay. So he says, great in every respect are the benefits of circumcision and the advantages to the Jewish people. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he's saying, look... Just the first of the many things I can think of that are advantageous to the Jewish people that God has blessed them with as his chosen people. Just the first of those is that God has been talking to them for 4,000 years. Now think about this for a minute. There has not been another people on the earth 
at this time that God has been speaking to personally for 4,000 years. God chose the Jewish people, starting with Abraham, and he has been revealing himself regularly over and over again (coughs) and acting miraculously on behalf of the Jewish people over and over again, now for thousands of years leading up to this time. They have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, here's something you need to understand. The way history unfolded, and Paul's going to talk about this in a minute here, but the way that history unfolded is not the way that God wanted it to unfold with the Jewish people. The Jewish people were supposed to be priests and kings. They were to be God's representatives to the rest of the world of who he was and what he said. It wasn't supposed to just be said to the Jewish people and stop with them. That was never God's plan. Now, that's what happened in very large part. But the Jewish people were supposed to be God's, the entire nation of Israel were supposed to be God's royal priesthood. That they would be receiving revelation from God and disseminating it throughout humankind. That was God's plan for them. And they rejected that plan and just said, well, we're God's chosen people, so we're better than you. We're better than all of you. We're God's chosen people. We're better than all of you. That was never God's plan, ever. What God wanted to do was speak to the Jewish people and have it be released throughout all of mankind, which is what eventually happened because of Jesus. Now, we were really close to the same thing happening when Christianity came on the scene. Really close to being just a more lively sect of the Jewish religion. And God intervened and said, no, 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 you're not going to do that. And he did that in several ways. One is he released persecution on the church in Jerusalem, so the church had to spread out. You know, Jesus told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, right? Remember that? The end of Matthew? Did they do that immediately? No, they didn't. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. He said, but wait, wait until you're endued with power from on high. So they they spent some time in Jerusalem until the day of Pentecost, which was about, you know, a month and a half after the resurrection of Jesus, Okay. And then they get hit by the power of the Holy Spirit, and 5,000 people get saved, and then they sat in Jerusalem. They didn't take the gospel outside of Jerusalem. They didn't go anywhere to tell people about, to tell people about Jesus. They just had this growing movement in Jerusalem of this church. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit was saying to them, go, 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 but they weren't. They were right. They were just in this cozy little community. Several thousand of them. The Bible says that it was added to their number every day. The gospel was spreading there in Jerusalem. But Jesus has said, Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth, he wanted them to go out. And they weren't. So persecution began to come on them. And they had to flee Jerusalem. And it's when they fled Jerusalem that all of a sudden... Christianity starts popping up all over the place. Why? Because Christians are getting kicked out of Jerusalem and getting sent to all these other places. All of a sudden, now Christianity is spreading like wildfire. Well, what happened? God God said, get out of there. And so he kind of knocked them in the head a little bit and sent them out from Jerusalem. 
which is, you know, that's kind of harsh, right? They weren't listening to him. This is what we do. The church still does this. Religious people still do this. We accept the gospel. We love it. Oh, this is great. And then we love the community it creates. Oh, I love my brothers and sisters in Jesus. This is so awesome. And we create this little counterculture where it's you and me, and we're just going to hug and love Jesus together. And we're never going to talk to anybody that doesn't belong to us. Haven't you seen it happen? Doesn't it happen all the time? It happens every church. And then when new people come in, or new people get saved, everybody's kind of like, they don't know what they're supposed to do. This is my pew. They're not supposed to sit there. You know what I'm talking Yeah. Uh, David Fly talks about that in one of his books. Um, he says that the church has a problem with getting rid of um, the us and them factor. Like yes. That it's, not the, it's not the unsaved people that we against this season that we need to get rid of that so then we can um, actually successfully minister to I couldn't agree more the church thinks of the world as the enemy we even preach that way don't we don't we tell don't we tell our kids not to hang out with unsaved people Okay. Don't don't we don't we like encourage people? Oh, you need to spend time with with the body of Christ, right? Now, don't we kind of you know tell them, hey, you need you need to surround yourself with righteous people. And and I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. I think it is good for you to do that. But if you find yourself in the place where the only people you know are other Christians, how are you being a light to anybody? I have to say, this is one of the most difficult things about being in the pastoral world, in the, in the, in the, you know, because a lot of people, they have their church friends and then they have their work friends. Okay. And work is really the space where they encounter a lot more non-Christians. Okay. It's their door into the life of people that are not saved. Okay. And that's pretty great. But when you work in the church, Okay? It's really hard not to be surrounded by Christians 24-7. And I deal with this often. It is, it is really difficult. And I'm, I'm, actually, I'm in that place right now where I know my neighbor, like my neighbors on either side of me, they're the only non-Christians that I talk to on a semi-regular basis. Because my, I'm constantly trying to do things to build the church and make connections and, and build relationships with those with those Christian people, with my church people, because this is my job and this is what I'm trying to do and I'm trying to influence them and bring them up. But guess what? That leaves zero time in my life for me to have non-Christian associations. I don't have, right now, non-Christians in my life. And I'm kind of asking the Lord, okay, I mean, can you help me find a place to do that? Because I shouldn't be, how can, you know, a light with other lights is not as, you know, noticeable as a light in the middle of darkness. That's what we do. And the Jewish people were called to be a light in the midst of darkness, but they never went to the darkness. 
There was no Jewish missionary movement. Ever. There were people who came and became, you know, Jews. That did happen. People that encountered a living God who actually loves his people and were like, I would like to be a part of that. And the, the Jewish people would build this gigantic wall and say, well, we, you have to cut part of your penis off and you have to do all these things, okay, in order to become a Jewish person. And so a lot of people didn't, you know, you have to stop eating ham. No. <laughs> and, <laughs> no more bacon. That's it. I'm out. <laughs> Done. Okay. <laughs> too, too much bro. but they were the containers they were the ones that God had spoken to all those years now verse 3 says what then if some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God will it so in other words God had this plan and he put it out there and he you know he, he, he spoke he revealed himself to the Jewish people and when they didn't live out everything that they said to him, does that mean that God failed or that God wasn't faithful? No, no. Verse four, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man a liar. I love that line. I love that. Let God be true and every man a liar. I absolutely love that. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God is the truth. God knows the truth. And when God decides to do something, it's going to be done whether or not humans are cooperating. We need to understand this because we are living in an age where there, where there are many, many people that would say, I love the teachings of Jesus, but I can't stand the church. And the church has become the thing that keeps people from coming to Christ. I would follow Jesus, but every, all, every Christian I know is a hypocrite, so I can't. Have you heard that before? Because I have. When the church becomes a stumbling block over which they have to trip before they can get to Jesus, this is a problem. But guess what? doesn't matter. God knows what he's doing. There's a couple quotes. Should any man say that the promise of God had failed toward him, let him examine his heart and his ways, and he will find that he has departed out of that way in which alone God could, consistent with his holiness and truth, fulfill the promise. In other words, God makes promises. God puts these promises out there, and he makes these promises and says things like, I'm going to provide for your needs. He says things like, I will heal your diseases. And then we get, we, we get ourselves like up to our eyeballs in debt and we're like, God's not fulfilling my needs. Well, no, he fulfilled your needs, but he didn't, you know, he didn't say he was going to buy you a Nintendo Switch. He didn't say that he was going to, uh, you know, so he provided for your needs and you spent it on everything else. And now you're stuck in this place of debt and you're going, but God, and God's going, look, I gave you what you need. What you did with it after that has very little to do with me. You know, we live in this place where we, we eat terrible things. We never exercise. I'm speaking of myself completely right here. We eat terrible things. We never exercise. 
We, you know, we live lives that we know are unhealthy, but then we're saying, God's not good because he doesn't heal my sicknesses. Hello? You see, there's this path called wisdom that God's called us to live on. Okay, and when we step off and we get hurt, and then we look at God and say, you're mean. Did God tell you to jump off that building? No, then stop complaining that you have broken ankles. Okay, God has put this path in front of us called wisdom and he will protect us and he will help us and he will make all these promises. And God has plans for our lives and we wreck them. And still God comes in 90% of the time and rescues us from our own stupidity. But when it hurts getting back to the path that God has called us to walk on and it's painful and we turn around and point to God and say, you're not faithful. God's just rolling his eyes, but he loves us. Truth is, he's not rolling his eyes. But if I were God, I would be rolling my eyes. I would be like, oh, give me a break. You know what? Forget it. You're dead. Smite. 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 There would be so many fewer humans if I was God. Just like, all right, I'm done. Squish. It would happen in front of lots of people. Somebody said, I just don't think God is being faithful to me. Everybody else would be like, you're faithful, you're faithful. (laughs) (laughs) The pastors would have to have like a regular corpse cleanup crew. (laughs) Bring out Chitin. Bring out Chitin. You know, I mean, good Lord. (laughs) Truth is, I would have been killed many, many times over if God were that way. This is from Spurgeon. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word, and he thinks more of that than of the universal opinion of men. This needs to be heard in this generation. Because we love. There's this huge push right now. Okay? There's several huge pushes going on right now. One is that the church just needs to give up and accept that homosexuality is okay. That is a massive push right now in the culture, all around us, everywhere we look, our, uh, the world around us, the universal opinion of man is, church, just stop saying that that's evil and just give up and accept it, okay? Just stop saying that homosexuality is bad. Just quit. It's, it's so, that's so old-fashioned of you. Can you just let that go? Hillary Clinton actually said it on the campaign trail this year. She said that about homosexuality and abortion. That the church was just going to have to change our views on these two things. That, you know, the, 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 the slaughter of the unborn that's gone on for the last however many years is just okay. That there have been one billion, one billion abortions at this point on the planet. We should just be okay with that. Fully one-seventh of the population of the earth has been killed, and we should just be okay with that. The universal opinion of men should mean nothing to us, because God's word is the truth. Murder is murder. Homosexuality is a sin, and that's the way it is. 
See, there's lots of other sins that we have problems with that the culture just keeps on with. I don't know why they don't just let us have this one as well. Does that mean we should treat people who are in a homosexual lifestyle as if they were anathema and we should never talk to them or love them or care about them? Absolutely not. The church does need to learn how to love sinners and hate sin. We need to learn how to do that. We don't know how. The church does need to learn that it is not our job to tell the word the world that they're evil. That's not what we were called to do. Jesus did not say, go ye into all the world and tell the world that they suck. That is not what Jesus told us to do. A lot easier of a job. We are not the the world's accusers. We are the world's good news bringers. We are the ones saying, You're lost, you can be found. You're broken, you can be healed. You're not okay. Jesus died to make you better. That's our job. Our job is to preach the gospel. And when people have heard the gospel, then we teach them to obey everything that he has said. It's after that transaction of faith has begun that we then say, and this is the way our lives should be lived because this is the happiest, most glorious way to live. But our first job is to just get out there and tell people, Jesus died for you because he loves you and he doesn't care what your your past looks like. He cares about your future. And that's our job. Our job is not to get out into the world and just be, you know, the the finger pointers. But the church is much better at that than we are at preaching the gospel. Quite frankly, because it's just easier. You don't have to care about somebody to tell them they're a sinner. But you do have to care about them to give them the gospel. Telling somebody that they're horrible doesn't cost you anything. telling them that they can be better, it costs everything. Bringing people into the gospel is expensive because then you have to shepherd them. God forbid they actually believe that Jesus wants to change their life. Oh no, now we have new Christians we have to deal with. Oh, I have so much I have to teach them now. They might actually, wait, they might actually like wear something inappropriate to church. (gasps) They might actually, don't tell anyone, but they might actually cuss. Careful. I wouldn't go preaching to them if I were you. They might come to church and not wear deodorant. Of course, that's true about Master's Commission students too, but... (laughs) Hey, when you're out, you're out. (laughs) When I was in Master's Commission, we had this guy who's really great. He was my best friend all through Master's. And he just, he was just hairy. It's just who he was. And he had this big bushy beard. And, and one day he, he's, he, comes down, he comes downstairs and, and his beard was all nice and trimmed. And I was like, you know, you're looking good, Dave. Well, thanks. And then I went up to the to the the bathroom in the balcony, and there was just beard hair all over the bathroom. And I was just like, did, "Did you think this was okay? This is a public restroom. 
You don't even clean it up. The same guy. I was teaching a high school Sunday school class. Okay, and we're just like this, you know, sitting on couches or whatever. <coughs> and one of the girls kind of reaches like underneath the cushions and then pulls out a pair of huge whitey tighties. And she was like, "Ah!" Just freaking out. They were his. He had stayed there that night, and it, yeah, My it God. was. Yeah. <laughs> she was freaking out, and I can understand why. Because, yeah. The problem is what color they were. <coughs> I'm not going to comment on that because I don't remember that. So. We know it was somebody's underwear in the couch cushions. It was why disgusting. And you don't put your underwear. In he the couch was cushions? he worked as a janitor at the church, and so he had worked until like two in the morning, and then just didn't want to drive home. It, the place where he was, we didn't all live in one place. We had host homes, and his host home was a good 20 minutes from the church, and he just didn't want to drive home. So he went upstairs. We had this upstairs room kind of like this where we were. That was kind of our world, and he just slept up there on the couch. And, uh, yeah. Apparently he decided to make himself home. Yep. But anyway, okay, so no amount of human hypocrisy can stop God's plan. We need to understand that God already knows our, our failures. He already knows our bad decisions, and he has already made a plan to work around them. He knew they would disobey. He has it figured out. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness... Okay, so here's another one, and this is one you're going to hear a lot, especially when you start talking about things like predestination and things like a God who knows the future perfectly. You're going to hear this one, so just get ready. If my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? In other words, if God knew I was going to make a mistake, and he's going to use my mistake to glorify himself, why is he mad at me? <laughs> That's a... a brain right? God knew I was going to make this decision and God's going to use this decision to glorify himself so he can't be mad at me because my decision ended up glorifying it. (laughs) I feel like... (laughs) Verse 6, May it never be, for otherwise how would God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Makes sense, doesn't it? No, it does not make any sense at all. That's like saying that the that the Pharaoh who who hardened his heart against God and said, "No, Moses, you can't go anywhere," and therefore God had to slaughter the firstborn of all Egypt. Okay, that's like saying that Pharaoh. Well, it wouldn't be as good a story if he hadn't hardened his heart. God got to show his strength and his power. No, it's not, doesn't make it okay. Just because things ended up all right does not mean it is okay. That's not how it works. And we can't, God would never be able to judge anybody because he knew about everybody's sin before they committed it. You know that verse here later on in Romans 8.28? He's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That means that God is working the sins of the people around you for, to, and your sins to your good. And 
we could easily look at that and say, well, then good, I can just keep on sinning and it's going to be okay. No, wrong. That is not how God wants it to be. He would rather you didn't sin. It'd be much easier for him to make your, to make your life good. And the truth is, sin has eternal consequence. Whether we know it or not, whether we see it or not, there is a cost. And it's called the blood of Jesus. Evil cannot be justified by God's use of that evil to glorify himself. God is the only one that can be glorified by God's use of evil things to glorify himself. Because God doesn't have to do that, you know. And there's not going to be anybody in hell that says, I think my sin was a good idea. There's a poem that I found when I was doing this study that was I was going to wait till the end to read it to you but it just makes sense here so it says "Twas for my sins my dearest Lord hung on the cursed tree and groaned away his dying life for thee my soul for thee oh how I hate those lusts of mine that crucified my Lord those sins that pierced and nailed his flesh Fast to the fatal wood. Yes, my Redeemer, they shall die. My heart hath so decreed. Nor will I spare the guilty things that made my Savior bleed. We have to understand, sin can never be looked upon as a good thing. Seeing the glory of God's goodness should teach us to hate our own sin, not the other way around. And to be blown away by his generosity when our sin doesn't result in our immediate destruction. In verse 8 he says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Apparently, there were people saying that the Apostle Paul, as he's teaching this reality, that even our sin is going to be used to glorify God, that they were saying, well, Paul says we should just keep on sinning because good things are going to happen anyway. Paul is like, I was not saying that, and I have never said that. And whoever says that I said that, their condemnation is just. God's going to deal with them because they know the truth. Verse 9, but what then? Are we better than they are? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. In other words, I say their condemnation is just, but I deserve it just as much as they do. Paul gets it. Verse 10. As it is written, and it begins to quote the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, and there is none who seek for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Apostle Paul is making it really clear. There has only been one righteous human being in all of history, and it was Jesus Christ himself. Every other person that has ever lived has been full of sin. 
completely from top to bottom, screwed up. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. You need to, that last phrase of Romans 3 verse 20 Really, Romans 3.20 should be in your brains. It should be part of your DNA code. Through the law, no one will be justified, for the law through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is what the law is for. Christians, we still attempt to use the law to make us better. It was never, ever meant to do it. It's a ruler and only a ruler. It is a measuring stick. That is all it is for. The law does not help us get better. It just shows us that we're not okay. That's all the law was ever meant to do. Give us knowledge of our sin. That's what the law was for. To show us we need Jesus. We're meant to stand up against the ruler of the law and and hear the, the accusation, you don't measure up. That's what the law is for. That's all it's for, to reveal to us that we are sinners. We are broken. We're not okay. We can't do this on our own. That is all the law does. It can only accuse man and glorify God. That's all it can do. Because God stands beside the law. Oh, beautiful, wonderful, glorious. We stand beside the law, ugly, broken, destructive. That's how it works. You can't, the law can't justify you. The law can't make you better. It can't help you grow. It can't lift you up. It can't, it, the law cannot. People have tried to use the law as a path to God over and over and over again, but the law is not a ladder. The truth is, every religion in the history of the world is the same thing. It's a ladder being built out of laws to try and reach God. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. It's the we will ascend into heaven. It's the I'm going up. I'm going to I'm going to work my hardest. I'm going to exalt myself. I'm going to lift myself up. I'm going to save myself. It's that Western mindset, like I talked about earlier, that I don't need to receive anything. I'm a self-made man. It's that. It's that that bullcrap that refuses to acknowledge the fact that God gave us everything we have and that he is the only one that can give us righteousness on top of it all. Every single thing. Uh, the very first religious act in the history of our race. What was it? The very first time that man, humans, exerted their own energy to try and become like God. What was it? Correct. (laughs) 
That's what that stands for. It's true. Satan. Steve Jobs is the devil. <laughs> but it's alright, he died. He's their their eyeball eyeball right now. I hope that's not true, but I'm pretty sure it is. Reaching for the apple, for the knowledge of good and evil, what did Satan sell her? You'll be like God. Isn't that what he said? You'll be like God. So what did she do? There it was. The first religious act in human history. Here's my question to you. Did she need to do anything to be like God? No. She already was. Isn't that what Jesus, isn't that what God said about her when she was created? To make man in my own image. She was already like God. It was already hers. It was her inheritance. It was her nature. It was what she already had. And Satan convinced her, no, 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 you need to still, you need to do this. So that very first moment, very first sin was a religious act. It was an attempt to reach for God-likeness. And we have been doing it ever since. We still do it now. Even in the midst of the gospel, we still do it. I will make myself like God. I will accomplish it. Now, in a Christian context, we tend to do this by trying to earn God's favor. Truth is, this is the reason why most people fast when they fast. Like they find themselves in some serious trouble. I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Maybe if I starve myself, I will get God to do something for me. That's not the point. That's not what a fast is about. I know you guys are fasting because you had to. <laughs> <laughs> Okay? I'm not saying you shouldn't fast. I'm saying you need to fast for the right reasons. <clears throat> what a fast is, and I don't know how much teaching they've done, but here's why we fast. To make it really obvious to ourselves how weak and broken we are so that we rely on the power of God even more than we ever have before. It is enforced, it is purposeful weakness. Because we all of a sudden we realize when we don't have sugar in our veins that we're not very nice people without a certain amount of calories. We run smack into our own flesh in the midst of a fast. And we realize the truth. I am weak. And it's in that moment that we can turn and begin to rely on the Holy Spirit and the power of God to enable us to rise above our weakness, our irritation, our difficulty, our grumbling stomachs, our aching heads. We have to rely on the power of God in that moment to be like Jesus. We can't rely on the power of Starbucks to make us like Jesus. Okay, because all of us are kinder and better people when we have sugar and caffeine in our systems. Every single one of us. Am I wrong? That's the truth. Now when you have too much caffeine in your system, all of a sudden you become a jerk again. But still... You know, you get that nice balance. 
When you feel good, it is easy to act like Christ. When you don't, it is not. And fast, a fast is all about kicking all the props out from under you and coming face to face with your own mortality, your own flesh, and saying, I need Jesus more than I thought I did. It pushes us to rely on him more than we ever have before. That's the point of a fast. It is purposeful weakness. That's why we fast. Not to earn brownie points with God. Hey, I've been fasting for two weeks now, God, so you really have to answer my prayer. No, uh, no, sorry. No. But that's how some people think about a fast. Like, I really need an answer to this prayer, so I should probably fast. No. No. Now, if you're saying, I want to fast because it is in that place of weakness where I hear the voice of God the best, that's different. That's different. But you're not forcing God's hand or forcing God's mouth to speak to you. All right, stop fasting. I'll talk to you. No, this isn't. This isn't. This isn't. A, this isn't a hunger strike, okay? You're, you're not like, if you don't talk to me, I'm not going to eat anymore. It's not what it's about, okay? <laughs> it's true, though. It's exactly what Gandhi did. <laughs> but he didn't say it in his Indian accent, which really disappointed me. Okay. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. Okay. <clears throat> it was good. Purpose of this entire discussion up to this point has been this. The law can't save you. That's the bad news. The law can't save you. Here's the good news, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, Righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay. There is a way. The law is not the way. There is a way. You can't, you can't obtain righteousness through the law. You're never going to be justified by the law. You can't. All the law does is accuse. It's all it will ever do. But there is a way to become righteous, and it's apart from the law although it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets bear witness to what is going on here, to this righteousness that's available to us. In other words, when we accept the power of the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus, all of a sudden, the law is going to measure, hey, wait a minute, you're doing better. You're doing better. You're doing better. You're doing better. Wait a minute. Your behavior is changing. What's going on? We're going to line up more with the law. Not because the law helped us in any way, shape, or form, because it didn't. But the law will witness the fact that we're doing better. It's also a witness to the fact that we're not, all, we're not there yet. But the prophets also have spoken about this from the beginning. 
Okay, there's multiple places where the prophets have said there's coming a day when the law will be written on the hearts of men and not on tablets of stone. There's coming a day when you're going to obey out of your nature and not because you're worried about some kind of punishment. There's coming a day when you will become the glorious ones. The glory of the Lord will rise upon you and the world will see that you that, that you are a follower of Christ. The, the prophets have spoken of this over and over and over again that there is coming a day, there is coming a righteousness that is apart from the law that is going to be given to you by the power of God and not by some amount of human effort. Without the law's help, not through the power of the law, but you are you will become righteous. And it's not your righteousness, verse 22. It's the righteousness of God. You are given, gifted, handed the righteousness of God. See, the law is just a mirror of the righteousness of God. The law is just a description of the righteousness of God, and it's not even a very good description of the righteousness of God because it's kind of the photo negative of the righteousness of God. Have you ever seen a photo negative of your own face? Doesn't it kind of freak you out? Yeah. I used to have that as my, my profile picture on Facebook was a photo negative of my face, and people were like, that is creepy, because it is. Because everything on your face that's dark all of a sudden becomes white. Everything on your face that's bright becomes dark. See mine. <laughs> okay that the law is a photo negative of god why because the law doesn't the law says don't do this 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 right that's what the law says don't do these things don't do these things because they're the opposite of what god would do don't steal because god is the one who constantly gives don't lie because god is the truth does this make sense? The law is the photo negative of the nature of God. It's, it's, it's God saying, look, I'm not like that. Don't be like that. That's how the law works. Now, there are a couple things in the law that say do this, but most of them are don'ts. Most of them are stop, don't touch, don't eat, don't taste, don't move, don't breathe. Isn't that how the law feels sometimes? <laughs> I'm sure that's, I, I remember Master's Commission. That's how the law fell for me quite often. You mean, I, what do you mean? I can't do that. I can't. I went to see the movie Titanic. That is when I was in Master's Commission. That should tell you how old I am right there. <laughs> I went to see the movie Titanic when I was in Master's Commission, and I got, like, nailed for it. Like, it was the end of the world. But everybody was seeing Titanic 18 times at that time, you know. But that was like, I was in so much trouble. It didn't help that my former girlfriend was in the same room. But I was not sitting with her. Anyway. <coughs> don't move, don't breathe, don't think. You're out of line! <laughs> we used to have Monday morning meetings that we used to call Mountain Mountain Monday. Because we would go to the mountain and our director would like thunder and lightning and scare us to death. That's, that's how Mondays were. See, my director was very different than yours. You need to understand that. 
Okay, but he would, we would come on Mondays, and, and that was when we knew something we had done in the last week he was going to be ticked off about. And he had the list. And it would just be like, you are... <laughs> that was every Monday morning for us. We would do prayer and then be crucified. And then go on with the week. Yes, they said, pick up your cross. Yeah. But they kept giving us new crosses. <laughs> I made you a poplar one this time. Crucified, 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 crucified. We would all gather around and be like, bring yourself off of it if you're the son. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Truth is, I got in a lot less trouble than just about everybody else in Master's Commission because I've always kind of been a teacher's pet a little bit, and uh, and so I would just kind of like like that whole incident with the beard hair got brought up at a Monday morning thing. Anyway, underwear situation. Oh yes, those are the kind of things we got in trouble for. But anyway, you're playing far too much euchre. No more cards. What? I'm serious. Yes, that happened. What? Oh, yes. Lies. <laughs> they weren't lies. We were playing way too much. <laughs> now, Jesus is giving us the righteousness of God. Still, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So faith is the only way to receive this righteousness. This righteousness that Paul is describing, that's apart from the law of God, that actually is the righteousness of God. The law is the law is this is is that photo negative of God. What we're given in the gospel is the truth of God. It's the fullness of God. It's God's character and nature made alive on the inside of us. The law is all no, no, no. The gospel is yes. The law is bondage. The gospel is freedom. The gospel is you're free to do this or not do it, and you say, I don't want to. That's the gospel. The gospel is the, the reality of God being formed on the inside of us. There's a church father that said it like this, and this is kind of a controversial statement, but I love it. His name is Athanasius, which is a great name. I wanted to name one of my kids Athanasius, yeah. and my wife was like, no. <laughs> so we can call him Athy, you know? No. <laughs> or Nazy. <laughs> or Nacious. <laughs> No, Athanasius. So there isn't an Athanasius Hawkins, at least in this generation. Still name my kid Thunder. That's interesting. No. Drake Bell. It's just like if I was John Tucky, I would have named one of my kids Ken. Yeah. I mean, I would have. I just would have. My sister had a friend named Elka Seltzer. So. Yes. 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 No joke. <laughs> my last name is Simmons. Nothing comes in handy with Simmons. So, anyway. Bart. Oh my God. <laughs> what was I talking about? I don't remember that. <laughs> That's a great Athanasius. Athanasius. There you go. Athanasius. This is what he said. He said, God became a man so man could become God. Does, Ath does Athanasius mean we become like God Almighty? No. But it means that because Jesus became a man, he gave us the ability to become like God. That God-likeness would be formed on the inside of us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
That's the righteousness you've been given. It's not just some like set of rules that you have to follow. No, this is a being that we are becoming. We are being formed, shaped, turned, moved, aligned, set in, set in motion toward a thing. And it is Jesus Christ. He's the finish line. He's where we're pointed at. Here's what we, you know, he's what we're being formed into. He's the image we're being formed into. It's where we're headed. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. John 6, 29 says, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of God. Faith is the work of God. Now he says, through faith in Jesus Christ, then he says, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not ethnic Jews, not Greeks, not any barbarian or anyone else, but God, but God is the only righteous, only righteous one and everyone else has fallen short of the glory of God. You all know that verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is it right here. And he's saying, look, this, that verse is good all by itself, but the context of it is this, Jews, you're not better than Greeks. No man can claim to be better than another. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. The only way to this kind of righteousness is faith in Jesus Christ. For anybody, it doesn't matter who you are. You don't get a leg up because God's been talking to your people for 4,000 years. 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. We're going to unpack these couple phrases here. The only way to receive the righteousness of God is, one, as a gift. <coughs> Do you earn gifts? No. Do you earn gifts? No. It's a gift. It's given to you. Why, why, why do people give you gifts? Exactly. Not because you deserve it. Even though, Lord knows, I did the non-gospel thing with my kids and constantly said, I have all these gifts. You better behave or I'm going to take them all away. <laughs> so they think they earned them. Santa Claus is anti-gospel. Can I just say that? I'm watching you every minute. When you're sleeping, when you're awake. And if you're bad, I'm giving you a coal to remind you of the hell that you're going to burn in. <laughs> <laughs> he's anti-gospel, yet he's burning. He is anti-gospel. That's what I'm saying. Because, because you don't get gifts because you've been good. You get gifts because you're loved. You get gifts because you're adored. You get gifts because you are that person. You are, you know, a significant person in that other person's life. That's why they're giving you a gift. That's it. That's the whole reason. That's 100% of the reason. And I give gifts to my children, not because they've been amazing, because let me tell you, they haven't. I love my kids. They're amazing people, but they aren't, they, they're, you know, life with them can be difficult sometimes because they're kids. It doesn't matter what they do. I still love them and I will still give them gifts. Why? Because I love them. It's not based on their behavior. 
It's based on the way that I feel about them. And that's how the gospel comes to us. That's how forgiveness comes to us. How many of you feel bad when you ask God to forgive you? Don't. God's not asking you, well, you spend 10 minutes feeling guilty about it, and then I'll forgive you. No. Stop trying to pay God for the gifts that he wants to give you. He forgives you because he loves you. He rejoices in forgiving you. The Bible says that he delights to show mercy. It is a mind-blowing reality, but it's true. And when we come to him in the midst of our sin and we say, I screwed up again. He's like, I love you. You're forgiven. I already paid for this. He doesn't go, ah. Fine. There is no rolling of God's eyes when we screw up. There's no, again. Again. I, I knew you were going to go there. Because <laughs> I said it exactly <laughs> like <laughs> Again! Bring it again! I, Olin Rogers fans, anyone? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Olin Rogers is hysterical. I showed you, you the should, videos. Every yeah, guy I showed you, you the videos. You guys, you the ghost stuff. in the stalls. That's the end of Ghost in the Stalls, where he's, you know, he left his pants in the bathroom. I don't know what happened, but someone left their pants again, 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 again. I'm so sad of a man. Oh man. Anyway, okay. And I remember that. As a gift, unearned, okay? Receiving the gospel, you're receiving righteousness as a gift. Second phrase, by his grace. By his grace. Listen, every time you see the words by grace in scripture, I want you to replace them in your own mind with the words for free. Because that's what it means. It is coming to you as a gift by his grace. That means he is giving it to you. He's giving you something you do not deserve. You did not earn it. It is for free. It is by grace. That's what it means. For free you have been saved. Through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What's that verse? Very good. We're actually going to get back to that verse if we get there. We have eight minutes. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, as a gift, by grace, through Jesus' redemption. That means through the work that he did on the cross. Paid for by Jesus. He paid the price so he could give you something for free. Because he loves you. It wasn't free for him. It's just free for us. It was extremely expensive to him.
It costs far more than just the pain and the blood and the and and it costs far more than that. We do not understand the the height, the width of the cost that the that was paid on the cross. We do not understand. We cannot connect with the eternality, the infinity of the price that was paid for our souls to be forgiven. It was the son of the living God dying on that cross, far more than just some human being, even some good man. No, this was the son of the living God perishing, suffering on the cross. And it didn't end with his death. When he said, it is finished, he then went to hell. Understand. He is not still there. He was resurrected, but he took the full punishment. He is an eternal being. And he went where you should have gone, so you do not have to. And the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Okay, so this is the only way to receive the righteousness that comes apart from the law as a gift by grace, through the work of Jesus on the cross. Verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's a, that's a big word. Everybody say it with me. Propitiation. Propitiation. Come on, say it again. Propitiation. 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 <laughs> it means an appeasement, an atonement. It means... It speaks very literally of the mercy seat. You guys know what the mercy seat is? Okay, think back to Raiders of the Lost Ark. All right, Indiana Jones. Okay. You've got the angels like facing each other like this on top of the ark, right? Yeah. The mercy seat is the gold that's right underneath them. That's called by the Bible the mercy seat. And when the priests would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, they would offer the blood of the slain lamb on the mercy seat so that God's grace would continue to flow to the people of Israel for another year. That is what happened. Now, when Jesus died, his blood was offered on the heavenly mercy seat and is still there forever. It was the last time blood would ever need to be put on the mercy seat, but it needed to be. Why? Because sin cannot go unpunished. Now listen to what he says. God displayed this gift. He waved it in front of the universe, in front of all of, all of mankind, in front of all of heaven, and said, sin is paid for. And here's why. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So here's the deal. Before Jesus even died, God had already been forgiving sins. The Bible says very clearly that the blood of goats and lambs cannot forgive sin. But Jesus' blood can. It can pay for sin. And all of the sins that had been forgiven up until that time were looking prophetically forward to the cross of Jesus. And at the cross of Jesus, God waved the blood over all of them and said, forgiven, 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 which is why they weren't in heaven when Jesus died. They were in paradise. They were in Abraham's bosom. That's what we call it. Really means they were just with Abraham. Because all of the people who had had faith in God's provision for their sins from the beginning of time until the end 
They had all got there the same way Abraham had. He had he saw the stars, believed God, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Guess what? Even Adam and Eve, all the way up through until the thief on the cross, all of them were saved by faith in what Jesus was going to do. And since that day, we have all been saved by faith in what Jesus did. The cross is the center point of human history. Everyone before it was forgiven by the cross and everyone after it was forgiven by the cross. Those people that put faith in God to forgive their sins. We have two minutes. We're trying to get to the end. But God had to prove himself righteous by paying for sin. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. How can anyone boast when they did not earn their righteousness? Can you really say I'm better than you if the only reason that you are considered righteous is because you were given to you as a gift? It's like the people that brag because they're tall. You didn't make yourself tall. <laughs> you can't be like, I ate more vegetables than you as a child, and that's why I'm taller than you. I'm obviously better than you. Bull crap! It's jeans! Stop bragging! It's because you're jeans. It's not my fault when I'm of average height. You can't boast. You can't bo boast in something you had nothing to do with. Oh, yeah. I, I used, as, a, as a kid, I always just was like, I just want to be taller than my dad. I really should have set my sides higher. <laughs> I mean, set higher. I should have I set them higher. I want to be as tall as my dad. Sorry, buddy. Not going to be tall as dad. I love you. Yeah, I'm like so close. Ephesians 2 8. Again, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Now, wait a minute. What's the gift of God? Read that sentence. By grace you have been saved through faith and that, not of yourself. What does the that refer to? Wrong. Faith. <laughs> Check this out. Not only is your salvation, I wanted somebody to say that, so thank you. Not only is your salvation a gift, but the very faith that gave you your salvation was a gift. You don't even get to claim any credit for the faith that allowed you to receive your salvation. The faith was the gift of God also. So you're not an active participant in this. God saved you completely. That's 100% of the truth. You did not save yourself in any way, shape, or form. The faith that enabled you to say yes to God's gift didn't even come from you. Now, I will say this. You could have said no. Is that faith continual? Yep. It's the gift of faith, and we got to keep asking for it. The, the guy who I think had a better, the, the best understanding I have ever seen of this thing called faith was Smith Wigglesworth. He got it. He got it. He was a crazy man. He was insane because he believed God could do anything. Is that crazy? He actually, honestly, truthfully to his core believed that God could do anything. And because of that, he saw God do anything. And he said this. He said, stop trying to do things by your own faith. You need to use God's faith to do things. So do you want to know how I heal people? 
I get into God's faith and God's faith heals them. I just receive more of God's faith. I can't do it. My faith is tiny, tiny. God's faith. I just get God's faith. And here's the beautiful thing. He said that, and then he points back to scripture. And what does Jesus say? If you have faith in God, you can move a mountain. That's what our Bibles all say. You can go find it. It's two places in the Gospels where Jesus says, have faith in God, and you can say to this mountain, be be moved from here and thrown into the sea. If you look at the original language, it does not say faith in God. It says, if you have the faith of God. But our modern English translators were evangelicals. And they wanted to make sure that there was some kind of, you know, thing that you had to do. So they turned that word and they said, no, 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 it should say in. But that's not what it says in the original language. It says of. The faith of God. Which is backed up by the scripture here. Faith that's not of yourselves. That faith is the gift of God. So you can't even boast in faith. You can't even say, I got all this faith. No, you don't. It was the faith of God working inside of you because the word of God came in and exploded an imperishable seed. Faith was just created on the inside of you. That faith reached out to the gospel message, grabbed hold of it and saved your soul and you had nothing to do with it. Isn't that good news? I love it. I love it. I, I love it. The more God shows me that, that, that I'm terrible and he's awesome, the more I'm excited. <laughs> I don't want anything. Of, I feel like it takes a lot of pressure off. It does. Like, it's beautiful. Fly or something. Exactly. <laughs> faith of God. I want your faith, God. And so when I'm, when I'm praying for things, I'll be like, God, give me your faith. I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't do this. Please give me your faith. It's that guy, again, you know, when Jesus came down off the mountain after, after transfiguration, and he, he's face-to-face with this guy who the, the disciples cannot cast the demon out of his son. You know this story. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, with faith, all things are possible. And the guy gives the most honest answer. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> I believe, help my unbelief. Look, yes, he says, he says, I believe. And then he realizes, maybe I don't believe enough. Can you help my unbelief? Like, whatever amount of belief I don't have that needs to be filled in there. Look, I just want my son free. So whatever, whatever amount of faith I don't have, can you help me with that? I love that prayer. And I pray it all the time. I'm serious. All the time when I'm up against, like, stuff that scares the crap out of me. I'm just like, I believe. Help my unbelief. I, can't. I, I, I want your faith. I don't have enough faith for this. It's really good news. Really good news. Verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? He is not the God of Gentiles. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith is one God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're equally condemned by the law. We're equally redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? Amen. We did it. We went five minutes long, but we did it.